Let's open our precious Bibles to Psalm 91. And let's celebrate the great God that we have. Let's rejoice in the great promises He's given. And let's all leave this place today agreeing that His conditions are simple and that we want to give Him those things. Psalm 91 is a simple psalm, and I hope that we can enjoy it this morning. We had a young man in our church, known for his fear and love of God, his sober lifestyle, saved from a terrible auto wreck on Monday evening at 5.04. We want to thank the Lord for his kindness toward Jonathan, toward his wife, toward his parents, toward his family, and toward all of us. He's our brother and our son together. There's comfort in the precious promises of this psalm that I hope will build your faith. I want you to have great faith so when the day of calamity comes to your house, or when you give that tremulous sigh that we just sang about, our trust will be in the Almighty that this psalm describes so well. It's very simple. I've already mentioned that. This psalm is very simple. Two things you want to see. Because each verse is either a promise or a condition. And there's three verses that have the conditions, and the other 13 are the promises of what God will do for those that put their trust in Him. It's of grave importance. And that is no pun. It's of grave importance for all of us to fulfill these conditions today. So that if tomorrow were to bring a storm, as we sang, our trust would be under the wings of the Almighty that would shelter us from that storm. Our trust would be in the rock for those in a weary land or in a gloomy land, as we also sang. If you do not learn the conditions of this psalm and put your trust in the Lord in the way this psalm describes, when the day of trouble comes, even if I were to be there reading these to you or the person of your choice, they're nothing but the vain words of men, because the psalm will not apply to you. This psalm is not for believers. This psalm is not for all men. To read this psalm beside a bed in a hospital is no better than mumbling the Koran. Because there is no magic in these words. The blessing of Psalm 91 is the reality of the promises given to the man that fulfills the conditions. And only a few men in the history of the world have fulfilled the conditions of Psalm 91. They are the rare exception, not the general rule, even among believers. Too many believers are still in love with this world, still worried about their stupid little lives, still fretting about their little businesses, still looking for little toys to have to make them happy. Psalm 91 is for a man that has no regard for business, toys, or this life, but who loves the God of heaven who has come and revealed himself to him and allowed him into his secret place. And that's what we want to do. Oh, we want to do it before that day comes. Don't make me a hypocrite when I read the word of God to you in your hospital bed. 
It's amazing what some ministers think about the Word of God. They think that by reading it, it's got some sort of residual power. It doesn't have any such thing. The value of Scripture are the promises that are laid hold of by faith. It's not the sound of the words. It's not even the sense of the words. It's the promises actually laid hold of and claimed by faith in the God. Then it takes on value. And what a blessed time I had this past week. I know Jonathan Carnell. I've known him for 15 years. I know that the things of this life don't attract him. I know that he loves the Lord and fears God. I know that he loves the Scriptures and pays very careful attention to what is preached from this pulpit and remembers it and applies it. I know that when he's tried, because he's been tried, he's come to me in some of his trials. When he's been told to put his trust in the Lord and what to do, he's done it with joy and he's done it thoroughly. It was a pleasure to meet Jonathan in the hospital. I told the waiting room on Monday night, I'm glad it's Jonathan in there. It makes it easy for all of us because it's Jonathan Cardell in there. We know how much he loves the Lord and obeys the Lord. We know that spiritual things are more important to him. We know that he made the secret place the Most High, his dwelling place. And so to comfort him is easy. It's to read the Word of God and tell him, Jonathan, this psalm was inspired by the Most High God for you, brother, son. It was inspired for you. See, there's a God infinite in heaven who's able to inspire a psalm and put it in singular pronouns for each of us that put our trust in Him. Because I'll use Psalm 91 again before the Lord takes me out of this world with someone else, if the Lord wills. But it's a personal psalm for each of you. But the point I'm making is, and here's what we've got to walk away from Psalm 91 with this morning. Does it apply to me? Is Psalm 91 my psalm? Because unless you've made the secret place of the Most High your dwelling place, it's not your psalm. It doesn't matter if you've been baptized. It doesn't matter that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The devils believe it well. They tremble at that information. It's are you walking with God and do you have intimate, personal communion with Him? Are His things more important than anything else? Do you love Him? Do you love His name? And do you trust in His name? And do you speak of His name to others? If you do those things, then the psalm is yours. Then you can bask in its light. Rejoice in its promises. And take it with you every day for the rest of your life. I would hope everyone would want this psalm to apply to them. Does the title, Lord of Hosts, mean anything to you? The Lord of Hosts is God's name describing His position as Commander-in-Chief of a real army. Instead of little boys playing soldiers, a real army. Angels. The Lord of Hosts. You know, there were men in the Bible called Captain of the Host. But that was captain of an earthly army. Cannot even resist little tiny bugs called the pestilence. But there is an army in heaven. It's 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. And their leader is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of hosts. We want to put our trust in Him this day. 
and have him charge his angels concerning us. What a promise. He gives orders. And there's no one going AWOL on him. There's no one fleeing to Canada on this commander-in-chief. When he gives his orders, they're all obeyed. And they're obeyed fully and perfectly. And he gives orders for everyone that puts their trust in him. He gives orders in heaven. Let's go for it. An outline of the psalm. I like to see how a psalm is progressing. Here's a little outline that might help you. The first two verses are an introduction. And they're an introduction this way. Verse 1 is a summary of the psalm. Because it has the promise and it has the condition all together in one long sentence. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. The man that gets close to God is going to be under his protection. That's verse 1. Verse 2, the writer of the psalm wants to tell you right off the bat, I've done that. What I'm about to tell you, I've done. What I just described in my summary of verse 1, I've done. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In Him will I trust. So that's the introduction. The writer, we don't know who it was. It doesn't say David. It doesn't say Moses. Psalm 90 was Moses. Psalm 91, it doesn't matter, either David or Moses. They both had hard times in their lives, but the Lord delivered them out of all their afflictions. Amen. So from we come to verse 3, and in verses 3 through 8, the safety of the righteous is described in the second person where God is going to do these things to you. It's addressed to you. Not to him, but to you. See, surely he shall deliver thee. When you find a thee or a thou or a thy in the Bible, it means one person. That's why the King James Version is superior to any other English version available today. The other modern versions today only know how to use you, your, or that's it. You know, the King James has you, your, ye, versus thee, thy, and thine. When it begins with a T, it means one single individual person. When it begins with a Y, it means plural. And so the reason that's exciting to me is because you get into Psalm 91, it's not written to a whole nation, it's not written to a whole church, it's written to one individual person. Now I don't know about you, but I want to be the person. I want to be the he of verse 1. And so verses 3 through 8 describe the security, the preservation, the deliverance, the safety of the man who makes the Most High his habitation. Then we come to verses 9 through 10, and it's, it's stated again, the condition is in verse 9, because, because thou hast made, then there's just a general blanket promise that God's going to protect you from everything in verses 9 and 10. How he does it is described in verses 11 through 13. By his host, by his angels, is how he delivers men. In verses 11 through 13, then it comes to verse 14. The condition is mentioned again in verse 14, but now we have God speaking. Now we have God speaking of what He is going to do to the man who puts his trust in Him and who loves Him and who thinks upon His name. And so the last three verses are God speaking to those who love His name. There's a little outline. That's the conclusion when God wraps it up in verses 14 through 16. What a psalm! Very simple. Let's look at it. The conditions, if you want to mark, 
like circling the verse number to see where the conditions are. They're 1, 9, and 14. There are your conditions for this psalm and to have all these promises. But let's begin with verse 1. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. There's no commas in it. It doesn't need any. It's simply one statement of fact, and it's a summary of this psalm. It summarizes the whole thing. The condition is in the first half of the sentence. The promise is in the second half. The condition, he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High, the promise shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Under the shadow of the Almighty. That sounds pretty close, doesn't it? If you're under the Lord's shadow, He must be right next to you. You must be within reaching distance of Him. He is certainly able to defend you when you are in His shadow. But how do you get in His shadow? The first half told us, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High. Now, when you dwell someplace, that means you have chosen to take up permanent residence in a place. You've made a choice to move. You've made a choice to go somewhere and stay there. He that dwelleth. When you dwell someplace, that means you're staying there. That's your home. That's where you like to be and stay. And we all need to move today if we're not already there. We want to move to the secret place of the Most High. Now, what's the secret place? That is where He comes and resorts with His saints. That is where you have communion with Him. We go to Him and meet Him for intimate fellowship. The best example from the Bible, since I don't like giving carnal examples, is David and Jonathan. David and Jonathan had sweet fellowship as friends, but they had to do it in secret places where they would not be seen coming together. We can read in 1 Samuel 23 about one time it occurring in the woods where Jonathan went to David and strengthened his hand in God. This secret place is where the rest of the world doesn't see. They don't even know there is a God hardly. And the ones that let His name out of their lips, most of them don't know Him either. I mean, the whole nation says, in God we trust. They don't know what trust is. They don't know who God is. They just say the words. But there are others who go into their closets, who go into their souls, and they go to meet the Lord. They go to His secret place where He can be found. They go and meet with Him in close, intimate fellowship. They're telling the Lord they love Him. They're asking the Lord to search their hearts. They're confessing their sins to the Lord. They read His Word as if it were a precious love letter. They know the secret place of the Most High. They go for intimate fellowship. Intimate fellowship with the Lord is not here. This is public worship of the congregation. Intimate fellowship is in your own heart, in your own mind, in your own soul, and you can have it at any time when you go to the Lord and for personal communion and fellowship and love of Him and praising His name and blessing Him and rejoicing in Him, confessing your sins, begging for His mercy, rejoicing in His goodness towards you, being full of the Holy Ghost, praying in the Holy Ghost, walking in the Holy Ghost, then you're in His secret place because the rest of the world doesn't see it and He comes there and meets with you, though others cannot hardly discern it. 
except by the fruits in your life. He that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. The, the truly righteous can hardly be figured out by the world. They don't know this special place where the righteous go and meet with God. That is dwelling in the secret place of the Most High. Now, a righteous man just doesn't go there three times a year when the preacher really preaches an exciting sermon. He doesn't go there five times a year when they hear Handel's Messiah. He goes there often because he wants to dwell there. He wants to stay there. And he hates anything that keeps him from there. That's why I've already ridiculed so many little idols that the world sets up to steal you away from the secret place of the Most High. A righteous man hates all those things. There has never been a single man in the history of the world that got distracted and loved the things of this life and yet dwelt in the secret place of the Most High. Because they are antithetical, contrary, and opposite to each other. You have to reject the things of this life. Work becomes a necessary evil. Things become a necessary evil. This world is a time of pilgrimage and sojourning. We're strangers and pilgrims here, not looking for anything that's lasting in order to go to the secret place of the Most High. And so we've got to hate all those things. And we've got to love the secret of His pavilion, brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ and the God of heaven has a pavilion, and we ought to flee to it in the midst of all the confusion and chaos around us, and He will take us into the secret place. Psalm 18, if you need another chapter of Psalms to read. He'll take us into His secret place, and there we can dwell with Him, and we'll always be under His shadow. I don't want to run away from the Lord and be outside His shadow. And do you know how we run away from the Lord? We get distracted with the things of this life. And we run away from the Lord. It doesn't matter if you don't have positive, wicked thoughts against the Lord. You don't have to say, I hate you. All you have to do is love this world, and you do hate Him. Because the Lord God Himself said, if you're a friend of the world, you're my enemy. You can't get to the secret place. I'm describing the character of a righteous man. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High. This psalm isn't for the ungodly. This psalm isn't for carnal believers. This psalm is only for spiritually minded righteous men who love the Lord and who love intimate fellowship with Him and seek it out and make time for it in their day and who from the heart love Him. He that dwelleth, stays there, lives there, takes up permanent residence in the secret place of the Most High. Now I love how the psalmist describes Him as the Most High. Now, if he's the Most High, what is there to be afraid of? Do you remember in school when you learned there are comparative terms and there are superlative terms? And when you've got the expression Most High, is that comparative or superlative? Superlative. Superlative. There's none higher, is there? So nothing else can frighten you. So right off the bat, what does that mean? But you know what I mean. Immediately, the psalmist says, he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. The one that stays close to God spiritually will always be protected by that God physically and eternally. And so in the first verse, which is a summary of the whole psalm, we see the condition and we see the promise. 
If you're under the shadow of Almighty God, that means you're very close to Him, and you got very close to Him and His protection by being very close to Him spiritually, by your choice of choosing to make Him your habitation. And where you would rather go than anywhere else is to be with the Lord in a secret place where He can speak to your soul through His Word, through prayer, through singing, through praise, through worship, through talking to others about Him, where you can take comfort in your soul and live closely with the Most High. When you do that, then you're under the shadow of the Almighty. Now, is Almighty comparative or superlative? Almighty. Superlative. Again, there is none as mighty because He's Almighty. He has all might and He doesn't share it with anyone else. So there's no reason to fear if you're close to the Lord spiritually because you're going to be under the shadow of the Almighty. David often spoke in the Psalms. You can find them in a number of places where he said that he put his trust under the shadow of his wings. See, little chicks are taught by the God of heaven that when they're threatened with danger, they run to mama. Mama is taught by the God of heaven when her chicks are threatened by danger, she puts them under her wings and shelters them from whatever that danger might be. If you are content with a chicken in a barnyard, the principle still rules. Those little tiny helpless chicks are protected by a pretty big and pretty ferocious mother if you try to take the chicks. But if you want to think of eaglets in a nest with a mother eagle over them, you've got the same rule as well. Under the shadow of his wings. The Lord, my God, does not have to be ashamed of having wings because there's enough said about him in the Bible that it is no disrespect at all. None at all. He doesn't literally have wings. It's just a word picture. For us, if we had been farmers, we would appreciate the picture. We have to read about it to appreciate it. We have to hear about it to appreciate it. But there is verse 1. That's a summary of the whole thing. I hope that you see the clarity of the fact that it's not just the elect. It's not just believers. It's those that walk closely with God that will always be protected. Verse 2. The writer says, After having said in verse 1, in the third person, He... Do you remember your persons? I will go to the store. That's in the first person. You need to go to the store. That's in the second person. She will go to the store for us. That's the third person. You know, there's one person. When I just say something about that I'm going to do, there's only one person involved. I'm going to do such and such. There's only one person there. But if I say something to you, then there's two people involved, so it's the second person. And then if we're talking about someone else, it's the third person. In the first verse, it was the third person. Then the writer claims what's in the first verse himself as he opens his psalm. He says, I, I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him will I trust. Now, we don't know if this was David or Moses. But in either case, it meant a great deal to Israel to have verse 2. Because it was David or Moses saying, what I've just told you about in verse 1, I'm going to do it. I have done it. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, 
in Him will I trust. And so we see the writer claiming it for himself. And do you know what we ought to do today? We ought to respond to this psalm with verse 2. It's how we ought to respond to hearing Psalm 91. We will say of the Lord, or you saying about yourself, I will say of the Lord. He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, and Him will I trust. And I hope every one of you will say that this morning. So that we can claim this for ourselves. The response in verse 2 is the response of a righteous man. And so we have the introduction. A summary of the psalm in verse 1 and a personal claim to it in verse 2. And then we come to verses 3 through 8 that describe the protection he gives us. Look at verse 3. Surely, do you like that word? Surely, maybe, possibly, potentially, surely. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David knew what it meant. Do you know what it means? Surely, there is no doubt about it. There is no, there is no one or no thing in the universe that can stay his hand when he reaches forth to help those that put their trust in him. Surely, he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. Notice now we have shifted. The writer spoke in the third person in the first verse, in the first person in the second verse, and now he shifts to the second person in the third verse by addressing it to you. Surely, he, speaking of God, shall deliver thee. He's speaking to you. God, through the writer of Holy Scripture, is speaking to you. Surely, he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler, and from the noisome pestilence. Lay hold of these promises right now, brethren, because they're made to you individually from the God of heaven. Whatever we're about to read, it's surely going to be given to those that put their trust in Him, those that dwell in the secret place of the Most High. Now, a fowler was a hunter of birds. And this is before they had bird shot for shotguns. They didn't just walk around and blow birds out of the sky. They had to seduce birds to come down into a snare. And that's what a fowler did. A fowler was one who trapped, caught, captured birds. And it took skill. They would make, they would take pains to hide the snare from the sight of the bird. Then the bird would fly down into the snare and be captured. Whether to be killed or to be kept as a pet or whatever. But the fowler was one who captured birds by tricking them. And so the warning here, the promise is, it's not a warning, it's a promise. That when evil men are out to capture you, when evil men are out to trick you, the Lord God's going to deliver you out of the snare of the fowler. Is there any spirit being wandering about this earth that wants to ensnare us and capture us, trick us and deceive us, lie to us? And capture us. It's the devil himself. But whether it be things natural, enemies natural, or our spiritual enemy, the promise is, surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler. God is going to help you get away. God will bless you to escape 
the efforts made by your enemies to capture you. He will deliver you. What a promise. And surely it will happen. You know, David wasn't teaching us that we would be delivered from literal fowlers, but from figurative ones. Enemies that would seek us. Enemies in this life and spiritual enemies in high places. If we are walking with the Lord, if we are in His secret place, He'll deliver us from those snares. You know, David was often afraid of evil men because there were lots of men lying to try to get close to David to capture him. Whether it be Philistines or whether it be his own nation. We're trying to turn him over to Saul. That's why we have Psalm 144 where it speaks of, Lord, rid me and deliver me from strange children. Because many of them have a mouth that speaketh vanity and their right hand is a right hand of falsehood. They're liars. There's deceivers. There are many men, religiously, that are liars and deceivers. And the promise here is, for those that dwell in his secret place, I'll deliver you out of the snare of the fowler. You'll not get caught. I will help you escape. And then it says, and from the noisome pestilence. What is a pestilence? It's a disease. It's an infectious disease that travels very rapidly among men and tears them down and destroys and steals lives. Because we have got rid of some infectious diseases, we don't think of it very often as being the plague that it once was. Do you remember when David numbered Israel, a pestilence burst forth on Israel that cost 70,000 lives in three days? You say, well, that's just in the Bible. Well, that's because you're ignorant of a little bit of history. Let's chase down something we've talked about before. Do you still have it, brother? Brother Jeff has the video. It ought to be temporarily, at least, in the church library for the rest of you to see. In 1918, a pestilence struck this earth. You don't read about it very often. Very few people even know about it. It's called the influenza of 1918. It's called the Spanish flu in some circles. But little tiny infectious disease spreading from one... How do you even describe it? It goes from one person to the next, and it circled this earth, and in one year, killed 70 million people on this planet. And do you know what kind of people it went after? Those aged 15 to 34 in great health. Most flus strike down those that are young and weak, or old and weak. This flu went after those in the best of health, and it found its greatest eating place, in the armies of the world that were in the trenches of World War I. It began in our country in a military base in Kansas. And it had no regard for how many push-ups a young man could do. No regard at all. A man could start feeling poor in the morning and be dead by night, and he got to die this way. His lungs filled up with bloody foam, and he suffocated to death. It was a terrible flu. Terrible. The the Allies and the Germans lined up in France across from each other in their trench warfare. The stupidest kind of warfare you could ever imagine. An imbecile could have figured out a better way to fight than to line up and just blast at each other for months and months and months and months. But anyway, the enemy was not across no man's land with a machine gun. The enemy was coming down unseen through the trench. As they fell over, one after another, thousands, then tens of thousands, on both sides. 
In this country, in one year, 675,000 died from the influenza of 1918. It set back the longevity tables, actuarial tables, 10 years in one year. It set back the average lifespan 10 years. That is a pestilence. It can come again. It came in the Bible times, and it's come in the last century in our own nation. If you have older relatives, all you have to do is ask them about the influenza of 1918, and some of them have some terrible memories of that plague that struck our nation. And there wasn't a thing they could do. They still don't know today what they would do. They have barely, if they even have, figured out what it was. They were trying all sorts of things. They thought that tobacco smoke might kill it. So everybody was taking up smoking and filling, not every, you know what I mean by everybody, everybody that believes such a stupid thought, filling their houses with tobacco smoke. Then they started wearing masks. They started fumigating with chemicals, but they couldn't stop the influenza of 1918 until the Lord God lifted that plague from this planet. And that was 70 million lives later. Now, I tell you that story because you ought to watch the video. You ought to humble yourself before the God of heaven. There's a whole lot of ways you can go out of this world. And I want you to understand Psalm 91. When a pestilence comes into town, you can't escape it. It's in the hands of God whether it strikes you or not. You can't stop it. And once you got it, If it was going to take your life, you weren't going to keep your life. Thanks to the internet, if you want to go home and just punch in influenza 1918, you'll have plenty to read. Horror stories with horrible pictures. And it went after people in their prime. It tore up tens of thousands of young men. Transferred all over the world through troop ships. The nation of India was terribly smashed by it. The worst of all the nations in the number that died. Anyway, when I read verse 3 and I see the noisome pestilence, it's good for us to be reminded what a pestilence is like. An infectious disease that rapidly moves from one person to a next. It cannot be seen. It cannot be stopped. You cannot put up a fence and keep it out. You can't visibly see it. It comes in at night. It comes in at day. It gets you in all sorts of ways that you can't even figure out. And it's noisome because it makes a whole lot of people screaming and crying. In fear and terror as it strikes them down in their house. As soon as you would start to feel bad in the influenza of 1918, do you realize you'd start counting your minutes and hours? Because everyone, those, some of those that you knew that had got it were dead within a day. The noisome pestilence. Where is protection from a pestilence? Is it in a vaccination? Is it in penicillin? It's in the Lord. It's in the shadow of the Almighty. And how do you get in the shadow of the Almighty? You run to His secret place and you have fellowship and communion with Him. And He will protect you. You say to me, and this, this is, I'm going to say this maybe once or twice. You say to me, does that mean that there was no one of those 70 million that put their trust in Him? Oh, I'm not saying that. Because sometimes God will overrule this promise 
to fulfill a bigger one. And that's to take you to heaven. Bring the influenza. If it's God's time for you to go to heaven, which promise do you want? Heaven for eternity? Or to be saved for ten more years to scratch out a miserable life in this world? Lord, help us. Don't think that God doesn't keep His promises. He just keeps higher ones. If He can make you more perfect by giving you the influenza, what do you want Him to do if you have a sober and spiritual soul? Bring me the influenza. You know, maybe if you started feeling poorly, it might get you to the secret place of the Most High. If that's what it took to get you to the secret place of the Most High, has He not kept His promises? Or has He been most merciful? Oh, I love... You can't lose going to the secret place of the Most High. You cannot lose. If He doesn't protect you from the pestilence, He's going to take you home to heaven. He's going to show you His salvation as the last verse is going to tell you of this psalm. The noisome pestilence. Surely... He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. Verse 4, He shall cover thee with His feathers and under His wings shalt thou trust. There's that word picture of birds protecting their chicks under their feathers and wings. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. God's promises and God's doctrines will preserve and keep you. His promises will shore up your faith in time of trouble. His doctrine will save you from liars and deceivers. God will always be there to protect you. His truth shall be your shield and your buckler. Verse 5, Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day. Most men, women, children, are frightened at night. And there's good reason to be frightened at night. You can't see what's going on. How many guards, how many watches have been set for military camps where the guard could not wait until daybreak to get some light on the battlefield because in the dark you cannot see your enemy. You do not know what's lurking outside your house in the dark. You do not know what's lurking in the jungle in the military. You cannot see the road as well at night when you're driving. Darkness is frightening. But here the promise is, thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night. The terror of an army coming in at night. The terror of thieves or robbers or murderers at night. The terror of a pestilence at night. You know, infectious diseases don't sleep at night. They keep right on traveling and do wrecking their havoc. And so the promise is, even though nighttime is dangerous, and in the night you can't see all your enemies, I'll take care of you. Because you're under my shadow. Surely thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day. How big is the profile of an arrow coming at you? Is it this big? The profile of an arrow coming at you. Is it about that big? Is it moving quickly? You're in battle. You've drawn your sword, and your enemy has drawn his sword. The rest of the armies are fighting. 
You have one man in front of you. You can see him with your two eyes. He's only got one arm. He's only, I mean, one arm wielding a sword. He's only got one sword. Now that is a battle that you can engage in confidently. It's one-on-one, mano-on-mano. How well have you trained? How well are, how fervently are you going to fight? And then at the last second, you see a speck over here in your peripheral vision, and an arrow goes right through your head. Oh, you did all that bicep work for handling that sword, and it didn't do a bit of good. That's what that verse means. Nor for the arrow that flieth by day. There is terror at night when you don't know that a man is not sneaking up behind you with a piece of piano wire to take your head off in a silent operation. You don't know during the daytime when an arrow is going to come. Now, do you know how important this was in in the Bible? Let me tell you how important it was. King Saul and his three sons went down at the hands of Philistine archers. The Bible tells us that. That's in 1 Samuel 31. When we get to 2 Samuel chapter 1, where David is lamenting the death of King Saul, lamenting the death of his friend Jonathan, it puts in parentheses for us, the Holy Spirit does, David taught the men of Judah how to use the bow. It angered him that arrows took advantage of King Saul. Now, it was the Lord. It wouldn't have mattered what the Philistines had brought. If they'd have used slingshots purchased at Walmart, King Saul was going down that day. Remember? The witch had already told him so. The devil-worshipping fool. Do you remember? Do you remember? He went to the witch of Endor. To seek help for the battle. So it didn't matter what came. But arrows were very frightening. You'd be focusing on the man in front of you and an arrow would strike you. Do you remember how Ahab went down? Now Ahab was a king in battle. He had the best armor. He had the best chariot. And he had the fastest horses. And he had resolved that that day he was not going to go down because he was going to prove that Micaiah the prophet didn't know what he was talking about. Are you with me? What took him down? An arrow flung at a shot at a venture from a bow. That arrow traced itself all the way through the sky and hit a joint in Ahab's armor and took him down. Arrows are dangerous. Can you think about the danger of them? You wouldn't see them until it hit you. Because if it was coming at you, it has the smallest profile. If it's going at your buddy, you might see it because it would have a longer profile. But not coming at you. I look at that verse and I try to think... And you can realize, Lord, if you were up against the Philistines and they had archers off to the side, while the man in front of you is engaging your attention, you could be struck by an arrow. Who's going to save you from that? The shadow of the Almighty. The shadow of the Almighty will save you. Surely, He shall deliver thee from the arrow that flieth by day. That's what the Bible teaches. Put your trust in Him. Verse 6, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness. Here's that pestilence brought up again. A pestilence doesn't sleep at night. It just keeps right on working. It doesn't take off. It devours your body. And men died in the night as well as during the day, during the influenza of 1918. Nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. It doesn't matter whether it's hid in darkness or whether it's visible during the day. God will deliver you from both. There's destruction that can waste in broad daylight because you can't stop it. You're outnumbered. You're outnumbered by an infectious disease. You're outnumbered by an army that comes greater than yours. 
In either case, you're totally dependent upon the shadow of the Almighty. Verse 7, A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. You may see the destruction all around you. And if you think about the influenza, there'd be houses on both sides of your house that would have been struck by that pandemic. And yet the promise is, it shall not come nigh thee. I will deliver you, even though men are falling all around you. We have men in this assembly that were delivered out of Nam, and men fell all around them. 58,000 men fell all around them, and yet they're here today. And David was in battles after battle after battle. And though men fell all around him, it never came nigh him. One time, when he was on the deck, under the hands of one of Goliath's brothers, ready to lose his life, the Lord raised up his nephew, Abishai, to deliver him. It shall not come nigh thee. It shall not come nigh thee. A thousand shall fall at thy side. What else do you want to think about? Do you want to think about car accidents? You know, as I went through this phrase by phrase with Jonathan, 30,000 to 50,000 a year over the last 30 years have died in automobile accidents. A thousand shall fall at thy side, 10,000 at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. The pickup truck shall not come nigh thee. It'll get close, but not come nigh thee. If 50,000 die a year, it's a little high, that's 60s and 70s violent driving. No airbags, no seatbelts, just full fury and folly on the highways. But let's say it was 50,000, that's 1,000 a week. While our Jonathan was delivered, 1,000 were not. So we love verses like this. A thousand shall fall at thy side and ten thousand at thy right hand. You might say to yourself, well, the odds are terrible. The odds are I'm going down. It shall not come nigh thee. Odds mean nothing to the God of heaven. He is not a statistician. He is the ruin of statisticians. He loves to turn status. You know I can turn you to a number of verses where he loves to, to, to turn diviners and wise men upside down. Oh, brethren, put your trust in Him today. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. When God comes and judges the wicked, you're only going to see it with your eyes. It will not come nigh thee. He is going to protect you no matter how many fall around you. So we come to verses 9 through 11 where the Lord tells us how He's going to... First of all, we have 9 and 10 where we have the condition stated again and the blanket promise. Verses 3 through 8 that we just covered described His promises. Then in verse 9, here's the condition. Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. There's the promise. The condition is in verse 9, and it's very similar to verse 1. Instead of saying the secret place of the Most High, here it says the habitation of the Most High. Because thou hast made the Lord thy habitation. And in the middle of that verse, the writer says, I've done it too. Did you notice that? See, we've got the first half part of the verse and the last part of the verse talking about you, and the middle part of the verse talking about the writer. The first and last parts. Because thou hast made the Lord thy habitation. 
But in the middle, which is my refuge, even the Most High. You've made the Most High your habitation, just as in the first verse, where you made the secret place the Most High your dwelling place. It's the same thing. Closeness to God. Running to God for refuge. Putting your trust in Him. Loving Him. Lifting up His name as your defense. So there's the condition in verse 9, the promise in verse 10. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. That is the promise of the Lord to the righteous who walk in close communion with Him. You say, but didn't some righteous men die? Oh, yes, they did. Poor Elijah had to die. Elijah had to die. Yes, he did. It was a terrible thing. He stood there and had a final conversation with Elisha. And then the chariots of God came down and parked beside him. Not, they didn't park for long. And they took Elijah into their taxi service and took him to heaven. Yes, sometimes the righteous die. Which would you rather be? Saved alive in this world? Or taken to heaven in a chariot with the angels of God? He keeps all of his promises. If one of these promises is not kept, it's because he is keeping a higher promise towards you. Or doing something towards you that is better for you. Always. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. Now, how does he do it? He charges his angels. Look at verse 11. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. How is verse 10 going to happen that no evil can get you and no plague can come nigh your dwelling? And I'll tell you something. Angels aren't as ignorant of infectious diseases as man is. I'm sure they're able to see them and scrape them off the top of a table with their hands. You say, how do you know that? Because of verse 12. Haven't you read this passage? It says he'll give his angels charge over thee and in their hands they shall keep thee, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. I believe totally that at 5.04 on Monday afternoon, a hand was reached out, no problem at all. A hand was reached out and stopped that speeding pickup from crushing Jonathan's body any worse than it was. It'll only come nigh thee. And it didn't crush him. It just gave us all a reminder that our trust is in the Lord. But a hand was reached out. And I believe a hand was reached out, not because I like to be melodramatic, but because I believe verse 12. It says, They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. The hand. But I want verse 11. Because verse 11 is my favorite about the angels. He shall give his angels charge over thee. What does that mean? The God of heaven gives orders. He gives personal orders to his angels to protect you personally. What's in it? Why, why, are angels, why do angels even exist? Hebrews chapter 1, 13 and 14 tells us God created angels to protect the righteous. They are their servants. They are ministering spirits. What does the word minister mean? To serve. They are our servants. That does not mean we are greater than they are because we are less than they are. But we've been promoted above them. We're the sons of God. We're the sons of God in an intimate relationship that causes them to want to look into these things. But they are our servants. Hebrews chapter 1, 13 and 14. I tell you, 
The angel of the Lord encampeth. That's a military term. Encampeth round about them that fear Him and delivereth them. That's how He does it. God of heaven gives commandments. He gives orders to specific angels to take care of you. Specifically and personally. One at a time. Brethren, don't ever doubt this. It's incredible. It's the Word of God. These are the mysteries that the rest of the world doesn't know about, but we know about them. They do their best to copy angels with their stupid little movies and stupid little programs. They, if they've never met an angel, they don't look like the fairy little effeminate men they have portraying them or the women. The angels of God, if you ever saw them, you fell at their feet as dead thinking you'd seen God Himself. One took down 185,000 Assyrian boys pretending they were soldiers in one night. They were all dead corpses in the morning. He gives orders. He shall give His angels charge over thee. Thee. The captain of the host says, I will protect you. Now, angel so-and-so, I am charging you to take care of him today. And on Monday afternoon, where an event occurred that had been ordained before the foundation of the world, the God of heaven said, angel or angels, I expect you to be on Highway 123 and stop that vehicle short of crushing Jonathan. That's what we believe. And it's glorious to think about it. It's glorious to revel in it. This is the truth of the universe. Every other book written that you can read or any website you can go to is untrue. Let God be true, but every man a liar. This is the truth of God's Word. Micaiah the prophet said, as he stood on trial before King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat, 400 false prophets arguing against him. Prophet Micaiah said, I'll tell you what's happened. I saw heaven opened. I saw heaven opened and the Lord sitting on His throne. And all the host of heaven gathered before Him on the left hand and the right hand. And the Lord said, Who will get Ahab into battle today so I can kill him? One angel said, I'll do such and such. The Lord said, No. Another angel said, I'll do it. No. Then an evil spirit stood up and said, I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Good idea, the Lord said. Go and prosper. This is all in 1 Kings 22 and in the account in Chronicles that matches it. Micaiah saw heaven opened. God wrote it down so that you would know that heaven is opened. And every day there is a Lord on His throne who is the Lord of hosts who says, Who's going to protect David Jones? And I don't know what was lodged in that boy's throat or if he had a seizure All I know is an angel protected him a year ago. And an angel was charged to protect Jonathan Carnell. And we rejoice in it. And these angels are always serving us, and they're always giving charges to deliver us when we make the secret place of the Most High our dwelling place. You say, well, that's not enough illustrations for me. It's not. I see Daniel in a lion's den. Daniel was thrown into a cave full of lions that were very hungry. And he had to spend all night with those lions. They would have eaten him so easily, but an angel was there just doing this. Pinching their little mouths shut. 
You don't have enough strength in all the muscles of your body to stop the jaw of a lion. But an angel pinched them shut. Daniel laid there with his head resting against one of them all night long waiting for King Darius in the morning so that he could bless the Most High for saving him. King Darius came to the mouth of that cave and said, Oh, Daniel, that trusts in the living God, was your God able to save you? Oh, King, live forever. Can you hear that echoing up out of the lion's den? Oh, King, live forever. My God has sent His angel, and He gave that angel charge to keep me. Now get me out of here, King, because we've got some more work to do. These lions are hungry. And they came out and they threw the men that had tried to destroy Daniel into that lion's den. And what does the Bible tell us? Every bone was broken before they hit the bottom of the den. Now those are hungry lions. But they weren't hungry the night before because there was an angel there. You know, if that angel had let those animals see him just a little tiny bit, they would have lost their hunger. I'm... Oh, you think, you think not? What happened to Balaam's ass? Why was it so frightened that it ran into a wall? Because it saw the angel. It saw the angel. Brethren, there's angels. I can't get out of the book of Daniel. I see three Hebrew men in a fiery furnace. But the fire's not hurting them. There must be some incredible force, power, person in that furnace with them because the fire's not even touching them. Their eyebrows aren't even singed and the smell of smoke is not on their clothes. There's some supernatural power there. And what was it? Daniel 3, 28. Nebuchadnezzar said, God has sent his angel and protected these three men from the fire. That fire was so hot that it killed the mightiest men of Nebuchadnezzar's army as he threw those three Hebrew men on their way. He shall give his angels charge. God gives orders to His angels for you personally if you're one of those that go to His secret place. That is glorious. That's what this psalm is for. It happened to us this week. A hand reached out. When you see Jonathan, get up close to him. Kiss his cheeks. Touch his cheeks. Say, show me your injuries. And he'll work his foot up to show you a three-quarter of an inch scratch because he was protected. Listen, you'll want to touch his face. He was hit at 50 or 60 miles an hour from the left side right here. His face should have gone into that glass in that doorway as it was collapsed three feet. Why aren't there some scratches? I just like to touch it. That's when he says, are you working on your bedside manner? Then I knew he was he was Okay. Oh, the Lord is so good. His, His angels are in this room. We don't worship them, but we're thankful for them. We're thankful for them, and we're glad that they keep His commandments without fail. He's never given a charge and had them go AWOL, as I mentioned earlier. I come into the New Testament. I see the Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness with the wild beast tempted 40 days. What did God send to help Him? The angels came and strengthened him. When you face your worst temptation, if you are one that runs for safety to the secret place of the Most High, the God of Heaven will send angels and deliver you in your darkest, deepest 
temptation possible. You have never had Satan himself trying to overthrow you in the way that the Lord Jesus did. But angels came to protect him. I see the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane in his dark hour that we're going to consider tonight at the Lord's Supper. And an angel was sent from heaven to comfort him. I see Peter in prison. Peter in prison. Four quaternions of soldiers. I would think that Herod had heard that Peter was known for walking out of prisons from Acts chapter 4 and 5. So Herod had four quaternions of soldiers. That's 16. Four four, four man squads of soldiers chained to Peter. But do you know what the Bible tells us? But prayer was made by the church unto God for him. And so an angel came in there and kicked Peter in the side, woke him up and said, get up and let's get out of here. Chains fell off, doors open, and Peter ends up on the street. He thought he'd been dreaming till he got out there on the street and had to figure out where he should go. And he said, the Lord sent his angel and delivered me. And he went and interrupted that prayer meeting. Brethren, oh, it, gets, it just keeps on going. Did Abraham pray for his nephew? Did Abraham negotiate the Lord God down from 50 righteous souls in Sodom all the way to 10? Did the Lord know why Abraham negotiated him down to 10? Because he thought that Lot's family would be good enough to save the city of Sodom. But Lot's family was too far gone. But did God still love Abraham? Was Abraham still his friend? Did God hear his prayer? God sent angels into the city of Sodom. And though they had to forcibly drag Lot and his wife and two daughters out of there, they forcibly dragged them out of that city for the sake of Abraham, the friend of God. I see Lazarus, dogs licking his sores outside the gate of the rich man's house, who sat inside and fared sumptuously every day. But I see one day heaven opened, and the God of heaven saying, My son Lazarus will suffer no more, in that earth. Bring him to me. I am giving a charge to bring Lazarus to me. And and Luke chapter 16 tells me that the angels of heaven arrived and took Lazarus home to heaven. Now who was faring sumptuously, my friends, my brethren? Lazarus was faring sumptuously. He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. I'm so glad it doesn't say just to keep thee in all the dangerous ways or the the few significant events you'll have in your life, but in all thy ways, the angels of God will be there. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Their hands are involved in saving you in the word picture that God wants to give us. Angels don't really have hands, but the Lord gives these pictures to us for us to visualize what we like to trust in, and that's a mighty hand. And the hand of the Lord is mighty by His mighty angels. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder. An adder is a poisonous, venomous snake. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder. The young lion, a strong one, and the dragon, any dangerous, wild, fierce, ferocious beast, shalt thou trample under feet. It doesn't say you'll just be able to run away from them. It says you'll be able to trample them under your feet. Domination, dominion over your enemies according to the power that the angels can give you. But when I read those terms, lion, adder, young lion, dragon, if you've got a spiritual mind, 
Do those metaphors apply to anything else? Lion. Adder. Young lion. Dragon. Is the devil, does he walk about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? Is he that old serpent? Is he also called the dragon? Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder. The young lion, the dragon, shalt thou trample under feet. I read Romans chapter 16 and verse 20. God shall bruise Satan shortly under thy feet. The feet of the Roman saints. I read Revelation chapter 12, 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Do you know what the devil had over all of us for 4,000 years? The fear of death. Do you know what Jesus Christ took away? The fear of death. They loved not their lives unto the death because of the blood of the Lamb, and they walked over Satan in the very thing that he thought he had power within. And that was the fear of death. Praise the Lord. It's all right here. God will deliver His people. And so the Lord sums up the whole chapter in verses 14 through 16. Because He hath set His love upon me. This is the Lord speaking. This is what moves me to want to charge my angels to deliver a man. Because He hath set His love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. Now that language is simple enough, isn't it? You know why the therefore is there? Because it's drawing a conclusion about the man that puts his trust in the Lord and sets his love upon the Lord. Do you love the Lord this morning? Do you love the Lord? If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll talk about me. If you love me, you'll live for me. If you love me, you'll serve those that love me. You'll be serving one another in this church. Because He hath set His love upon me, therefore will I deliver Him. He doesn't just stop there with deliverance. He says, I will set Him on high, because He hath known my name. I will lift Him up and exalt Him. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. True honor. Lasting honor. Honor that counts with God and good men is based on those that put their trust in the Lord. I will set him on high. And why? What's the rest of the condition in verse 14? Because he hath known my name. He loves my name. He talks about my name. He puts his trust in my name. He wants to know about my name. He loves reading about me. He hath known my name. When he's in trouble, he calls upon my name. When he needs something, he calls upon my name. When he's rejoicing and thankful, he blesses my name. He hath known my name. I read in Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, that God had a book of remembrance written before him for names to be written in his book of remembrance of those that thought upon the Lord and spake often to one another about him and his name. And that Lord said, they will be my jewels in the day when I judge the wicked there will be an obvious difference between my treatment of the wicked and my treatment of my jewels because they spoke often one to another about my name. This is the Lord speaking in verses 14 through 16. I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he's loved me and because he knew my name. He trusted in my name. He called upon my name. Here's the Lord continuing in verse 15. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I'm going to be his prayer answering God because he loves me and he knows my name. I will be with him in trouble. I will be with him. 
Have you ever been in trouble and you wanted someone with you because you felt so lonely? Just think back through your lives when you were all alone at some point in your life and fearful, I will be with him in trouble. Listen, when the Lord's with you, you've got quite a majority. I will deliver him and honor him. He's repeating himself, and it's not redundant, because he can repeat himself all day, and I still would love every word of it. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. You know, the Lord stopped. The Lord's ears are closed up and His arm is shortened that it cannot save when we live sinful and foolish lives. But when we live lives in the secret place of the Most High, His ears are wide open and His face is over the righteous. That's what it says in the Bible. It says it in Psalm 34 and 1 Peter 3. His face is over the righteous. He's just looking to help them. He's smiling upon them. But He turns that face away when we get caught up in this world. He just turns it away and knows that we're going to self-destruct. Because without His blessing, we can do nothing. Amen. With long life will I satisfy Him and show Him my salvation. Abraham lived to be 175 and it says he died full of days. In a good old age, it says about Abraham. You know, Sarah left him when she was 127 and he was 137. But he lived on another 38 years to 175. The Lord was with him. He was the friend of God. Job, what does it tell us in the last two verses of Job? Job lived a very long life and saw his children's children even to the fourth generation. And he died full of days. We see that Anna, who lived 87 years from her virginity, being in the temple. There was a woman who sought the secret place the Most High. She lived a long life. But brethren, with long life will I satisfy him. Do you know how long of a life he's going to satisfy all of us? Even forever and ever and ever. That is a long life. When you live forever, it's long. When you live forever, it's immortality. It's eternal life. And I will show him my salvation. I will show him salvation now, and I will show him salvation then. He put his trust in me. I will never let him be confounded. There's no fine line here. This is a great pile of blessings that God has promised to those that love Him and seek out His secret place. Brethren, what we need to walk away from this sermon with is that these verses do not apply to just believers. These verses do not apply to all men. These verses apply to those that have fellowship and communion with God and who walk with Him. Those that dwell in the secret place of the Most High, those who love Him and those who know His name and rejoice in that name. These promises are theirs and surely He will perform all these things for them and for Him. There's no comfort in these verses if we haven't put our whole trust in the Lord. May He bless us this day to read this, to remember what a great God He is and what He's done for us and to love Him and to to know His name to put our trust in Him, and to dwell the rest of our lives in His secret place. May the Lord bless this sermon to your hearts, to build your faith, and to give you words of comfort for those that you know that also trust in Him. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.